Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, so we are joined here today by two awesome guests. I'm so excited for this conversation, Kat Penno and Elaine Saunders. So before we jump into the conversation, why don't we go one by one, tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. We'll start with you, Kat. Hey, thanks for having me back on, Dave. I'm a big fan of your podcast, as you know, and always love to come on and have a discussion uh, with any parties that would like to join us. And today, yeah, I feel really privileged to be here with Elaine um, Saunders. So I'm Kat Penno. I was previously the founder and owner of Hearing Collective, and now I have joined forces and I'm working with uh, Hero. I am the director of Hearing Health. Fantastic. And Elaine, welcome to the podcast. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are for those that aren't familiar with the infamous Elaine Saunders. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here with you both. Um, I've been really looking forward to it. So yeah, my name is Elaine Saunders. I've been in hearing <clears throat> literally since I was 16, when I was the <clears throat> most junior, junior assistant in a residential school for deaf children, uh, which was one of those schools back in, this sounds like the 1800s, I'm not that old, um, but they were not allowed to sign. The hearing aids didn't work very well. They had no communication. So I've been in hearing and influenced by the need to really help people here for a long time. Uh, most recently, I founded or co-founded Blamey Saunders with my partner, Peter Blamey. Um, that was against a background of both of us having been in different aspects of the hearing industry. And I guess I should say I'm a, an audiologist, but I'm also a scientist and a biomedical engineer. Um, and I've worked in academia, I've worked in most areas of clinical audiology. Um, and all those things came together. There's a backstory to Blamey Saunders, which I can tell in a bit. So when we get to that, <clears throat> um, but you know, so my background really is very much that of being, bringing multi-disciplines, including business into hearing health. Fantastic. So yeah, I, I mean, when I was thinking about, you know, what we were going to talk about today, I, I was listening back to the conversation that Kat and I had last time on the podcast. It was, uh, I think it was June of 2020 and, um, or even maybe June of this year, but we talked a lot about, you know, kind of like it was mid pandemic and, you know, it became very apparent that telehealth was very, very needed. And we started to talk about Blamey and Saunders and how pioneering your work was. I mean, you really were on the forefront. You were doing it before I think a lot of the technology had even matured in order for it to be facilitated in such a way, yet you still made it work. And so I thought I'd like to kick this conversation off, you know, after the introductions to kind of walk through, like, how did that come to be? I mean, what was the big motivation behind it? And then what was that like in that period of time where the technology was a little bit raw and then sort of as it advanced to the point to where Sonova bought it? And then even like how you see the world today with all these new tools in light of the pandemic as well. I'm curious to just kind of get your thoughts 
from the start of it all into like how you see everything today? Well, that's the start of Blamey Saunders was really actually another company that you may not have heard of called Dynamic Hearing, which um, where I led a team of signal processing and software engineers uh, to develop signal processing for hearing aids. And at the heart of that was um, a digital amplifier that my business partner had invented that was uh, a, a strong alternative to compression. Um, it focused really on keeping um, the audible zone, if you like, with hearing aids in the sweet spot of hearing um, would be the best way to describe that. So that was one of the tools we had in this signal processing company where we worked with pretty much every hearing aid company from top tier to, let's say, the third tier sort of mom and pop shops around the world. And I have to say you learn an immense amount loitering around the head offices of hearing aid companies around the world. But one of the things we felt was that the customers for most of these companies was actually the audiologist or hearing aid dispenser. It wasn't really the end user. So we thought that what we'd really like to do, this was a venture capital owned company. We didn't own it, it belonged to venture capital and the university. Um, but what we thought we'd really like to do was try and remove the barriers to people getting hearing aids. And at the back end of that, we knew we had we could build the technologies to make it easy, where your end user consumer has no expectation about particular software or anything like that. They just want it to sound good and be easy. So we set out literally to remove the barriers to getting hearing aids. And they were effectively distance or even just not being able to get out of your house for some reason. We didn't anticipate COVID, um, but, you know, there are people with disabilities who can't get out, um, dexterity issues and the appearance. And we didn't hit them all at once. Took us uh, several years before we got through the whole list. We set out with the distance and cost, I should say. So we set out trying to remove all those barriers. And so that was the story. But we had this knowledge behind us of really how to build hearing aids, particularly the signal processing end, um, which was very, very, uh, very helpful. It was a strong technology business, or still is, at the back end, but nobody needs to know that. Oh, I mean, Elaine, it just blows my mind that you and Peter were so, like, so ahead of your time in, in regards to the business model side. I think... I think um, it was inevitable that the technology was always going, going to catch up. And I think even now, and I don't know if you both would agree with this, but technology is getting to the point where a lot of hearing technology will be able to be self-fit to a certain extent, not verified, but perhaps validated from a psychological ownership point of view with, with individuals. And um, I just think that the behavioural economics behind it or the psychology still stands. It, so what I'm saying is you hit on points such as uh, distance, so you're selling convenience, not just to those in regional or remote areas, but in metro areas as well. And I'd be interested to know if you know what percentage of your clients came from a metropolitan postcode, so the big city versus, say, Outbush. Um so you're hitting on convenience, price, stigma. 
so uh, so barriers to access, convenience, really, cost and stigma. Um, I I still think those factors will still stand. They still stand now, even though we've got an evolution of our services and our technology. So so I guess my my question really in a roundabout way is, how are you so forward thinking then and do you think much has really changed now even with a pandemic having occurred uh, i have to say i think we've gone backwards a bit um despite the pandemic um, wow okay in terms of the technologies in the hearing aids um i'll be quite honest i am disappointed that hearing aids have gone back to using uh, audio compression um i can't think that in let's say in the music industry anyone would tolerate having audio compression and it's difficult to fit. Um, I love Ted Venema's book on, um, or on the history of compression and it gives a really, I think, good story of how we are where we are with fitting predictions and so on. Um, I also think if you go to verification, we had the speech perception test online. We strongly encouraged people to uh, do the test before and after getting hearing aids. And we looked at their results, um, and if they weren't getting benefit, we were right on to it. Um, so I think um, we, we really wanted them to do that, to make sure that they were getting benefit. And that, to me, is much more meaningful than looking at validation of a real ear measurement or something like that, although you could do it if you wanted. We also wanted to offer people choice, and this goes back to uh, where you said we were far ahead, and that in 2000, it was 11 when we actually launched, if um, you asked anyone, how do you get a hearing aid? They would say, well, I have to go to the doctor or the audiologist. And so you're kind of having to explain your business model. Um, so that is something that perhaps would be different now. And that was a challenge in that we had to get to people direct and say, no, actually, you don't have to go to your doctor or you can do it all online you can do the test online we will support you online but if you want to you can come into the clinic so we gave them that choice and in the clinic I felt we had to have absolutely excellent audiologists who would really look at why people hadn't got a um, were not hearing well and what their options were but if they ended up buying hearing aids which most people did because actually most people as you know most people who have hearing difficulties actually need hearing aids um we tried to encourage them to go online so they wouldn't have the inconvenience of having to come in and out for things in the end of the day though since it was self-programming most people found that pretty easy and were pretty self-sufficient which i suppose leads me to my next question then um where where do you see in all honesty, let's imagine that the big five didn't exist. How would our profession actually look? I think that's a really good um, good question because I think audiologists um, really need to, to um, decide professionally themselves what they want to be and do. And I know some who would embrace having people come into their clinic and do really good diagnostic audiology. And I don't just mean knock out an audiogram and perhaps do a TIMP. Um, I mean, doing good diagnostic audiology, which helps determine really how they're going to do with hearing aid. Um, and I'll give an example of that, which is that people tweak hearing aids without really thinking about 
the difference between, let's say, hyperacusis and recruitment. I'm getting a bit techo here, an audiological techo, but um, <laughs> I, th I think that if audiologists want to really have a strong role and add value, they need to understand what, what value they bring. Um, and a lot of that is in the knowledge base. It's about saying, well, we can help you understand why you have hearing problems. We can help you get on top of things. If it's just a tweak software, then I don't think that's a future role for audiologists. If it's just to be in a retail setting, that's fine. It's an individual choice, but it wouldn't suit me. Yeah, that's been a theme throughout the podcast is this idea that, you know, if, if it's really just tied to the widget, there's not a bright future in that. I, I mean, I think that the, the value is in the provision of your expertise yeah. and it's finding ways to make that value more extensible. And that's why I've always gravitated toward telehealth. I think it's so interesting is it seems to be a great way to take your value yourself and make it more extensible. I think that's absolutely right. And it's a different skill set. Um, I did in my spare time, we, um, so to speak, we actually built a, a training course around teleaudiology and telehealth. And I went about it very differently to a traditional audiology course. Um, to me, it was all about good communication and understanding someone's environment in the home. So we talked a lot more about auditory phenomena, if you like, than we did about... Um, you know, anatomy and physiology. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's what I love about the way you think, Elaine, is that you do think outside, like what I call the standard audiology courses or boxes. And so I remember when I saw your course uh, in 2019, I was in Alice Springs and Sophie Bryce was there. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really interesting that this telehealth course or teleconsulting course actually falls under I think it was the Digital Health or Innovation Unit or Department at Swinburne University. Correct me if I got the university wrong. And what I liked was that you took a very holistic approach yeah. that could be applied to many professions. Yeah. And so I think, I think what aggravates me a bit about our industry is that all the brands, hearing aid brands, have the capacity and functionality in their technology to offer these services but we don't freely offer that. And by freely, I mean have access to almost an open source platform for telehealth. And so where do you see, given what you know from your past, what's happened or happening at the moment with the pandemic, where do you see the future of teleology going? I think um, universities really need to embrace it so that their students going out actually understand that it works and, it, and that people can fit their own hearing aids if, the, if it's set up right, the technology is designed right. And not only that, but the, the research shows, and we did a lot of research, we kept our science and research going throughout. Um, research shows that when people set up their own hearing aids, they actually like the settings better. Um, and that's not really surprising. I kind of make the analogy, I think of somebody coming into my house in the morning and setting my shower temperature up for me. Um, One, yeah. And you know, it's really easy to understand um, analogy. Well, it's not going to work. So the, um, I think the results that came out of the New Zealand study around, around it that Erin Keach did was that 
the settings were um, objectively similar if the audiologist did the setup, yeah. the client did their own setup, but the people preferred their own. Um, they had greater ownership. And I certainly had debates over the email or the um, phone with particularly, I have to say, engineer clients. We all know engineer audio, audio, uh, hearing aid clients yes. who absolutely insisted that I didn't know what I was talking about and they were going to set their hearing aid up the way they wanted. And intuitively, from an audiological point of view, you think that's, that's terrible. And in fact, with one guy, I said, look, that's never going to work. Send them back. And he just said, it will work. And then saw it back and he said, it does work and I'm not sending them back. <laughs> I love that. And, and what we talk about there is this, um, it's called psychological ownership. And there's like a, a lot of studies, not just with hearing aids, um, other devices. I know there was a study, I want to say with cochlear, where they found that the audiologist may have done the first fit, but then they gave control to those clients via an yeah. app and that the clients went off and made uh, vastly different adjustments and they surveyed them with an EMA, an ecological momentary assessment, and they found that participants preferred their fit over the audiologist's fit. And so for me, that, that bridge or that gap really comes down to perhaps some counselling and understanding how the technology will benefit them and auditory training. And I can see that across all hearing technologies now, hearables, hearing aids, and implants. Do you I think, think so right. do you think that's where the, the field's going? Well, I th yes, because I think, I think you're right, but I think actually it goes deeper than that. I think it's not all psychological. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, the, the science around, uh, uh, let's say, fitting formula and fitting predictions, it's all about the mean and the standard deviation. Now, we all know that we're individuals, and actually I've never met Mr Average um, because actually it's the scatter that's the, uh, and the individual data. I was very influenced by uh, a guy who's, believe it or not, presenting at a design conference where I felt somewhat out of, uh, out of my normal comfort zone. And the key speaker was um, designed chairs for people with arthritis and he said you you can't have an average person and an average chair it just won't suit anyone um you've got to have individual chairs and i think it's the same with um with hearing i think for a long long time we thought oh well if you can you know do real ear measurements your client will be happy because we'll know they're getting the sound but they actually might not like it Oh, insert mind blown emoji now. What you're saying is very <laughs> controversial, and I love it. Man, <laughs> yelling out hard over you, Elaine. Um, yeah, I think what you've just said we can apply to a lot of major, world recognizable brands out there. That yeah. there's an average, and if we design for the average, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's really a certain population. And I agree, we've never met Mr. or Mrs. Average. Uh, so how can we expect people to feel confident and satisfied with our services if we're going to hit these average targets? That's huge. It, 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 I know it's controversial. I'm kind of used to that. When we um, first started Blaby Saunders, I, I wanted to involve audiologists in the um, the evolution, if you like, of the of the. Um, the journey with Blamey Saunders, not specifically commercially, but I felt very strongly this was the, the future and I, I wanted audiologists 
to come along. And we did a seminar actually held at RMIT University, very eclectic. Um, and we called it um, Audiology in the, in the Connected Century. And I submitted it to the professional association to, uh, for them to disseminate it. And the response I got back from the professional association in Australia at that point was, this is not in the interests of audiologists. We will not support it. So I had a good audience, but there wasn't a single audiologist there. They were people from the general public, scientists, everybody except audiologists. That is absolutely <laughs> nuts. <laughs> absolutely nuts. You know you're and striking a chord there. <laughs> and I suppose now, what are your what is the professional feeling towards your your model? Has it flipped? Because it sounds like it was met originally with a lot of animosity, and now, now it certainly has flipped, and I think. Um, Sonova probably, I mean, I'm not really closely in touch anymore, but Sonova found themselves owning a teleaudiology company uh, as we went into a pandemic. So, you know, I think they probably got more value out of it than they actually expected to do so because they had a, a ready-built teleaudiology team. Um, I'm just going to take a quick diversion there because one of the things people forget about telehealth and particularly in audiology, is that you can actually respond to immediate situations uh, as any consumer company would. So health in general is saying, well, if we do telehealth, we do it just the same as we used to. We have appointments, um, you know, they still might be two or three weeks ahead. Whereas if you set up a telehealth team in the right way, and clearly you've got to work out the, the costs and everything, um, then you can respond immediately. And there is so much value in that, in not letting a problem fester. So someone, you know, contacts you and dealing with it just like a consumer company. I don't know, you probably do this at New Hero. Um, you know, you have a support ticket, a help ticket, and you help them that day. Um, and then you haven't got this festering audiological problem whereby they go off their devices and, you know, it doesn't work in these scenarios because you fixed it when it happened. So we had a, a, a team, and one of the comments I have made in teleaudiology when people said, oh, it, we can do it in our practice, we'll just schedule appointments. And I said, what are you going to do when you get 200 calls a day? Um, so you've got to think about scale, I think, in telehealth. And that may mean that you're not hiring people who have very high post-doc post you know, qualifications or, um, you know, have to work it work out how you're doing it. But I think telehealth and customer service are frankly synonymous. Yeah, because this is something I've thought a lot about too, is like this model is you have to rethink the whole the whole way in which that care is facilitated. I think it, I liken it to, you know, I use the analogy all the time of the dentist. So you go in and, you know, you're getting your teeth cleaned. You spend 5% of your time maybe with the dentist and you spend 95% of your time with the hygienist. It doesn't necessarily devalue that time that you spend with the audiologist. It's just that you don't necessarily warrant their, their care. And so I think it allows for them 
to, I think, have a level of oversight into all of the patients, but having, like you said, and whether it's audiology assistance or some type of front office technician, something like that, I just can't shake this feeling that, you know, what, what this ultimately might look like is, you know, the private practice of the future. And I come from the, from the state. So I have that perspective, but the private practice of the future might very well be, you have the brick and mortar presence. You have your, your current flow of patients that come through your doors, but then you augment it with click to chat telehealth. And, you know, some of those patients might actually come and see you and they, and so it might trans transfer between the two. Sometimes you might meet with them through follow-up visits online. Other times it might be, you know, that you're only visiting with them in person, but it, it seems to me like the two complement each other so well. However, you can't assume that the way in which you deliver care in the in-person model is like synonymous with the, the telehealth model. You're totally right. In fact, what um, our team found was that you learn so much on the telehealth side because people tell you everything on the phone or over the, you know, they, they are very yeah. responsive. That's a, that's a great <laughs> point. Have this experience. And so we... And I don't know whether they do this now or not, but we at one point put, um, we would put our new audiologists into the telehealth team for training because they would just learn so much. Um, The telehealth team are not inferior to the audiologists. They're different. Um, They are very interactive, very strongly customer service. They have to find a solution. Um, They have to do it fairly quickly because there are business economics. Um, But if someone has a a, a really bad problem or a difficult problem, or maybe one that has to be solved face-to-face, then they spend the time with an audiologist. It's different. Totally agree. And this makes me think of a lot of other conversations you've been having on your podcast, Dave, especially one uh, circling back to one with Andy and Mark Trong, maybe a year or so ago when he mentioned and you guys were discussing the the genius bars at apple and so what i'm thinking of and pulling together here as you both speak is that the future clinic will have the bricks and mortar uh genius bar out out the front and at that genius bar will have exactly what you say elaine like these customer service representatives face to face and virtually and i love the idea that we solve problems rather than letting them manifest because isn't this healthcare in general we've built reactive models where if you wait and wait to see the professional you your perception of this um annoyance blows out so by the time you actually see them hearing aids are in the drawer you're angry at the professional you're angry at the technology you haven't solved my hearing loss um issue i've paid thousands of dollars it's this we've built this negative cycle really where the experience doesn't yes. match expectations in the 21st century but so, so it's so systemic as well and I know it's the same in the states so it'd be very interesting to hear if anyone listening out there has already designed this future clinic please tell us so we can talk to you mm-hmm. um and if you're thinking about it please reach out because we'd also like to talk to you I believe <laughs> I mean, I, I have I, excellent points. I mean, I think what you're saying there, and, and this was absolutely central in to blaming Saunders, you have to build trust. And building trust is about your interaction with the uh, public. Whoever's doing it, you've got to have rock solid trust. And we actually ended up with um, three Eastern Seaboard clinics 
because initially we found that people kind of were, they might never visit those clinics, but they felt slightly comforted that there was actually a physical presence within their state. So, I mean, they functioned very well as, as clinics and they did some telehealth. The telehealth itself was predominantly centralised. Once you're on telehealth, just as we know from the COVID scenario, doesn't actually matter where your, um, your teleardiologists sit. Right. Well, they could be right. in St. Louis. They might be, have to get up in the middle of the night then. <laughs> I love this idea though, because I, yeah. I, I just think that, um, if I were an audiologist, I think I would be so, I would be so magnetized to this idea of, I can get back to just providing care. I can get back to yeah. tackling all these different solutions. It inverts the whole, like the value proposition in such a way where I think it's like, it, it then goes more toward, this is my healthcare provider and not like my hearing aid salesperson. And again, I don't mean to d- disparage the the current model because it is what it is. And I know that you know a lot of providers out there today they they do this on top of their current revenue generation model of selling hearing aids. But I think that the the reason that like there isn't a truly compelling alternative is because it just hasn't arisen yet, and there's not like a viable way to do it yet. And I think that as soon as that happens, I just I find this to be inevitable, basically, that the you will restore the value of the provider so dramatically. And, and it will, I think it will be totally viable because there's so much value there. There's so much value in like what Kat said of, you know, being more proactive with this. I mean, there's so little conversation today, even around hearing conservation and preserving your hearing. It's all about treating your hearing loss. So it just feels like there's so much potential out there with what providers can ultimately do if they're not like completely limited to, you know, basically the current model. I think that's absolutely right. And I think for audiologists of the future, I mean, they potentially have much more exciting careers. I I presented a a poster, or so we did a study some years ago, looking at the mismatch between audiology training and where most people ended up in jobs, in that most audiologists actually end up selling hearing aids. Um, The training doesn't focus on that and probably if it did no one would go into it um you know there are much more selling hearing aids is is okay so you know but it's but it's a a very small part of quite a broad skill set could not agree more so i know we have a hard stop coming up here kat did you want to say something there what what i'm hearing is that really we're just at the beginning of the telehealth journey i i sort of cringe at the word teleaudiology because it's really uh well uh, the end user or the consumer doesn't understand that and then it also implies uh certain things and i think if we're a bit more general about it uh, i'm hearing that we as a profession are at the beginning of our, our digital experience and i think we there is a lot a lot of opportunity here my brain's racing as as you talk elaine it's racing. I think you're right. I and mean, we actually use the word teleaudiology almost to give it some respectability. But so the I, I don't know how they hire now. So anything I say is historic. But <laughs> we um if for the teleaudiology team, I took people who'd got at least degree equivalent in health sciences, so broad health science, 
which I think is very important because people do tell you about their sore thumb when they're on the phone about their hearing aids. Um, <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, so, and I didn't want to have to explain, you know, have to teach them basic anatomy and all that kind of thing. So we had people who got degree equivalent of health sciences um, and some retail customer retail experience preferably in an area where it was required specialist knowledge. So I didn't particularly care what that was. So if it happened to be a hi-fi um, business, that was probably good. But where they had demonstrated they really could learn about a specialist topic. And then we taught them the rest and we ran an internal, um, we called it Blamey Saunders College, an internal training scheme to really bring them up to audiology levels, or we put them through um, an audiometry course re remotely. But so we we taught them the audiology on top of the basic skill set. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I I just find this whole thing like you were so ahead of your time. I guess as we close here, I would just be curious, like, okay, so if you were to start Blamey and Saunders in 2021, I mean, I know this is a loaded question, but I'm just curious, like. What would be going through your head right now, knowing everything that you now know, what currently exists, the current appetite for something like this? I mean, I guess what would be top of mind for you right now if you were to start this right now? I, I, I think I would be really trying to differentiate because the market is more crowded. And <clears throat> for a lot of things, I'd keep the same. I'd really want absolutely top customer service. Um, as you, I don't know whether you know or not, but we made our own hearing aids. Um, not sure I'd do that again, but um, we, uh, <coughs> I, I, I would do a lot the same, uh, but I'd have to expend less energy in, if you like, protecting the backside from, uh, <coughs> we complied, possibly over complied with anything you, you had to comply with mm. because we didn't want any of our, uh, the people who we'd upset a few people in the audiology profession. We didn't want them to be able to pull us down. So, but our focus was the customer, the end user, and that would still be exactly the same. Fantastic. This has been such a great chat. Kat, any closing thoughts? So many that we don't have enough time <laughs> yeah. to pull apart here. Uh, I really look forward to when we one day do meet again face to face and we've had some chats already virtually yeah. and I've always appreciated your time so thank you for being controversial even though you might not see it as that and I think it's really important to have these conversations in our profession mm -hmm. so that we keep evolving and being better than we were yesterday for our for our clients could thanks not Dave more. thanks Elaine could not agree more well thank you so much Elaine thank, thank you Kat and thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end we will chat with you next time cheers Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.